All right, so grab your Bibles and open to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. It's really interesting. I get, to, I get feedback every once in a while on the, the preaching, on the sermons, and, and uh, usually it's very encouraging. You know, sometimes it's like, hey, what about this? But all the time, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I take it as like God's, God's, uh, God's will and, and God's saying, hey, this is, this is going in a good direction. And uh, I haven't experienced that uh, more than I have in these past messages in Galatians. God is doing something through the preaching of this book in your lives. And it is, it's really powerful to see. And what it, what it tells me is that God is, is here in this church. He's, he's here now. And now I, I was talking with the guy as, he's come, as, as he was coming in, and I said, there is a reason you are here today. It is no accident. So we're going to find out now what that is. And so go ahead and stand, please. For the reading of Galatians chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 6 into the, the middle of verse 16. And uh, we're standing because this is, in fact, the Word of God. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That is the word of God. You may be seated. And as you are, let's pray one more time. Jesus, that passage says that you revealed, you were revealed to Paul. And we need that now. We, we have your revelation. It's in the scriptures. But we, we need you to open our eyes to what we just read. We need you to help us understand what this passage says. You do that. I, I don't do that as, as the teacher here. You do that. You allow us to see the things that are written in this word. And so please be gracious to each one of us and help us see what we can't see on our own. And Jesus, I want to I lift up Redemption Gateway to you now. I, wanna, I pray for them. I know that Dale and Sean are not being there, that there's going to be a, a, a hole left at that church. And so I lift them up to you and pray that you would begin even now today, this morning, to fill that hole. You've equipped people there. You've blessed that church incredibly through Dale and Shauna. And you've used them to bring, to bring much fame and attention to Jesus and so, God, I pray that you would bring more people there to do just that, to, to, to fill the shoes that Dale and Shauna are leaving. And, 
And God, I pray that right now as Luke is preaching, I pray that you would allow them to have the same experience that we have, that you would open the eyes of everyone at that church right now and at five o'clock tonight, that you would open their eyes to see how wonderful you are through the preaching of your word. Make your word powerful. Make Make your word active at Redemption Gateway this morning. And do those things here too, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I want to start with a question this morning. Have you ever played the game Telephone Pictionary? You ever heard of that game, Telephone Pictionary? It's a combination of telephone and Pictionary. So telephone, you remember that game that you have a group of people and you start one message, you whisper that message all the way around uh, the entire room until the message that is at the end is nothing like the message at the beginning. Remember the telephone game? Then there's Pictionary, there's some phrase that, that, that you're not allowed to say, you've got to draw it out, and, and, uh, and, and people have to guess what the phrase is from the drawing. So you put those two things together, and you've got Telephone Pictionary. And um, my in-laws love to play Telephone Pictionary. And when we do, they call it the Bloods versus the Crips. And so the Bloods are Katie's family. And so they're, they're all bound together by blood, or mom, dad, brother, sisters, and so on. The Crips are those who've married into the family, so, so like me. And it's easy to spot the Bloods versus the Crips based on their pictures, because Bloods can't draw. And it's just this, it's just this running joke. It's actually comical to see how bad some of the Bloods are at drawing, but really, like, I'm not one to talk. Like, I'm not, that, I'm not that great either. Thankfully, I'm part of the Crips, and so I get protected by the other Crips who are good drawers, drawers, and I'm just, you know, part of that. I've always wanted to be good at drawing. And for some time in elementary school, I thought, like, I'm going to be a good, good drawer, but uh, my skills have plummeted since those days. My favorite kind of art is realism. So I wanted all of my drawings to, to match. Like, I wanted them to match what was actually being drawn. And so when I, you know, so realism is this, this the, the pictures or the sculptures that they match reality. That they are, that when you look at them, they, they look like a photograph. That's the goal of realism. So that would be the goal of my drawing, which is sad and pathetic when you see reality versus Versus my drawings, you know, I, I might be slightly better at drawing than the bloods, but my drawings are an unrecognizable reflection of reality, which is the point of Galatians chapter one. The context of Galatians is false teachers. They've, they've infiltrated the church. The, the, these, this group of churches that Paul planted and he loves, these false teachers have infiltrated those churches and, he, and they've been preaching a gospel, a message of salvation that is wholly different. It is a fundamentally different than, than what Paul taught these churches. So different, in fact, that like we saw last week, if somebody embraces the message of the false teachers, which is that Christianity is great, Jesus is fine, he's great, he's the savior, he's wonderful, but he didn't do enough to save you. You've got to fill in the blanks. You've got to, he did his part, you do your part, and together you produce your salvation. That's the message of the false teachers. And Paul's saying, if you, if you say that, that's a distortion. If you say that, you're deserting God. And like we saw last week, or, or like we just read, really. To say that, to believe that is actually to lead to eternal hell. The gospel, on the other hand, the good news is that God did everything you need to be saved. Everything. You don't need to add anything to what he's done. 
In his grace, he comes to you, not after you've cleaned yourself up and made yourself acceptable to him. He comes to you in your sin and in your brokenness, in all the crimes that you've committed against him and said, guess what? All your crimes, I'm going to punish every single one of your crimes, but I'm not going to punish you for them. I punish Jesus for those crimes. All of them, every single one of them. And if you simply believe in my son, trust in my son, his perfection comes to you. Your sins go to him. He's punished. You get eternal blessing and friendship with God, something we don't deserve because of our sins, something only Jesus deserves because of his perfection. That's the gospel. God did everything you and I need to be saved. The message of the false teachers, like my drawings, are a dim reflection of that gospel. It was, verse 6, a different gospel. It was, verse 7, a distortion of the gospel, which, verse 8 and 9, means that it's actually opposed to the gospel. And the question for us to ponder this morning is this. Well, why is that? Why was their message different? Why was it a distortion? Why was it contrary to the real thing? It's one thing for Paul to say that. But he's trying to win these people back, these people that he loves. They're starting to deviate and go down a road that he knows that you, got, you can't go down this road. He loves them. and so, he's, so what is he going to do to try to bring them back? That's what we have here in Galatians. His answer to the question, why? Why should I believe you? Why, why should I turn from these false teachers and recommit to the things that, that you taught me? The, the answer to the question, it, it might surprise you because the answer is the message of the false teachers And really the message of every religion outside of Christianity is different than the gospel because Christianity is supernatural. Let that sink in for a minute. Christianity is supernatural. It's not from around here. The gospel is a stranger in a strange land. It's not natural, it's not normal, it's unusual, and that's because it's supernatural. So in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul said that there's only one gospel, one message of salvation. All other messages of salvation, all other religious ideas, all other, other religions are rejected by God and condemned. Now I know that sounds super arrogant to our live and let live, all roads lead to God, uh, who are you to judge kind of culture. But let's suspend those judgments and just say, well, let's see if Paul has anything to say. Let's hear him out. He might might not be as wrong as we think he is at first glance. It may be just that there is something out there. There is something out there that shows every religious message is just a dim reflection of this reality. Well, the question then could be raised, well, why is your gospel the one, Paul? Why why is your message the one that saves, Paul, and and not any other? Why is your message reality and everything else a bad drawing? Well, take a look at verse 11. He answers that question, verse 11, by saying this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Notice those last words, not man's gospel. In other words, Paul's gospel, his message of salvation, his message of good news to people who are lost, his message is special. It's not like every other religious message. It's unique, and he needed them to get this. He wanted them to get this so clearly. Notice how this verse starts. He says that he would have them know this. That, that, that means, uh, uh, let me make this clear. You know, I don't want you to be ignorant. You, you really need to get this is what he's saying. And then he's, the gospel the false teachers are distorting. The gospels that these Galatians were deserting, that gospel was not invented by human beings. 
And so he's saying it should never be altered. It should never be distorted. It should never be deserted because once that happens, it should never be because what, what's happening is that this is not a message that human beings made up. And notice verse 12. He says, it's not man's gospel. Why? Because it, it, I didn't receive it from any man. And I wasn't taught this either. So unlike us, Paul did not get his message from someone else. Did you, did you have that in your mind? There wasn't a long line of teachers that came to Paul and said, well, here's the truth. And then Paul said, okay, great. I get that now. And now I'll take that with me and I'll continue it on. Paul says, no, verse 11, the gospel isn't man-made. Verse 12, the gospel wasn't passed down from teacher to student until eventually it got to Paul. No, unlike false teaching, the false teaching in Galatian, unlike the false teaching that happens in our world, point number one, the gospel is not human. Unlike false teaching, Paul is saying, unlike the things that you've been learning, Galatian churches, the message that I brought to you when I planted this church, Paul says, it's not human. It's not human at all. What Paul was saying is there's, there's nothing human about the message of salvation that he preached. Or by extension, the, the message that we preach here. Because we just simply preach Paul's message. We, I'm, my goal is not to be innovative or creative. My, my job is to be a parrot. I am simply to say what the Bible says. I'm not to add to it. I'm not to take away from it. I'm just simply to say what the Bible says. And Paul's saying, I'm simply saying what God said to me. And if the gospel isn't human... Well, that leaves only one option. The gospel is divine. The gospel is God's message. It's not Paul. It's not ours. It's God's. I mean, think about it. Think about this for a second. That there is a God and you are not him. That there is, that that we have all sinned against that God tens of thousands of times. So that we stand under his angry punishment every second of our lives. And that, that, that he took the initiative to remove his angry punishment from us by sending Jesus here to live the life that we never would have lived as our substitute and to die the death that we do deserve as our substitute on the cross. And then to raise him from the dead and that those who believe in him, who give their lives to him, who repent of their sins and trust in him, that they'll be right with God forever. No one would have made that up. No one would have thought of that. And you know why? Because none of that has to do with us. You compare, like go out and study. Every other religion on the planet is you do your part, God or the universe or whatever does its, his, hers part. And together you produce your salvation. So get to work, jump through some hoops, you know, climb this mountain, do this stuff. And if you do that, then you'll be good. Then you'll be fine. You'll be saved. That's... That's man's gospel. Do better, try harder. God will reward you. We understand that. We get that. That's natural. However, the gospel doesn't increase our self-esteem. It doesn't put us on the pedestal that we crave. It, It lowers us and says, hey, you can't do anything to save yourself. I've done everything you need to be saved. Um. You were lost, I found you. You were drowning, I lifted you out. You were dead, I made you alive. This puts God on the pedestal that he deserves, lowering us, which again shows this, this is not something human beings would create. 
that, that, that the Father planned this, that Jesus accomplished it, and the Spirit takes people like, takes this message of the gospel to people like us and all around the world, that we are receivers, not contributors. This is not comfortable for us. This is not normal. We don't like this. This is, this is not how we like to do things. It's not easy for us to keep grace in our minds and keep this here in our heads and, and think, okay, like, I need, I need to remember grace. And so we have sermons and we have songs and we have studies that, that continually bring us back to this, to this gospel, this counterintuitive, non-normal, divine, supernatural gospel. This is why it can always feel like we're not making progress, like we're, like we're freshmen after being uh, committed to Jesus for 20 years. That's why, because this whole thing is not normal. This whole gospel, this whole living by the gospel, it's not normal for us. That's why when we were going through Mark, if you were here, we, we would continue to see these disciples who are with Jesus 24-7, 365, for at least two years, hearing him preach, having private meetings where he's explaining things, and they still don't get it over and over and over again. They don't understand what Jesus is doing, who he is, and, and, and what's going on, and then... Uh, I don't know about you, but when we were going through that, I read that and was like, yes, because that's me. I don't even get to walk with him 24-7, 365 for two years. I don't even get his physical presence teaching me. Um, and I don't get it. They don't get it. We're, we're, we're not good at this thing. We stray from what God thinks. We stray from what he wants simply by doing what comes naturally to us. So in 2008, when Dale and I were talking and meeting and talking and saying, gosh, wouldn't this be cool? At the beginning of that year, I led a trip um, of college students. We went, we went skiing in the mountains. And um, at the time, I thought I was, I don't know, maybe a little bit more athletic than I should have thought of myself at the time. And so um, I'm on the biggest run on this mountain. I'm snowboarding, and I charge it. And I failed to see that there was a little man-made jump as I'm going as fast as I can down this mountain. So before it was too late, I go off this jump. And instead of like staying you know, vertical, I went off the jump and just went horizontal. And so I'm horizontal through the air and eventually gravity takes over and I come down on my shoulder, break my collarbone. So I'm, uh, I'm laying there hyperventilating as people are going past me, screaming at me, get up, what are you doing, you know? And so I'm finally able to get up because my arm just doesn't feel right. And, and one of the guys that went with us is a, is a doctor. And so I, I, I snowboarded down to him, you know, and they're like, what happened to you? You know, I'm, I'm there for like 10 minutes. All my friends have gone, you know, all the students have taken off. And so I see them and I, I shimmy my way over there on my snowboard holding my arm, and he, I said, yeah, I think I did something. I mean, I heard it crack. I knew I was in bad, bad shape. And so the doctor, he grabs my arm and he does this. Nothing happened. He's like, okay, well, let's do this. And when I did this, he just went, it just went pop, pop, pop. And his words were, sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. You broke your collarbone. And so I'm right-handed. So that's not helpful, right? I had to, I had to learn how to type and write with my left hand. I had to learn how to stick shift with my left hand. I had, to, I had to learn how to brush my teeth with my left hand. You know, left-handedness doesn't come naturally to me. I have to slow down and I have to concentrate. And even when I do that, it doesn't come as naturally and easy, as easily as my right hand. Right-handed, simple, easy. Can you relate to that? The gospel is not human. 
The gospel is a left-handed message for right-handed people. So when you start to reorient your life around the gospel, as you start to reorient your life around gospel-centered ways of doing finances or marriage or friendships or priorities or leadership or whatever it is, it's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel like it doesn't work. It's going to be hard to understand because the gospel is not human. Doubts and difficulties before you're saved, doubts and difficulties after you're saved will be the norm. Because you'll have to think biblically, which doesn't come naturally. You'll have to concentrate, concentrate instead of doing life on autopilot. You'll have to just be okay with the fact that Christianity will never feel completely natural and obvious in this life. We are spiritually right-handed people with a left-handed, non-human, supernatural gospel. Now, if the gospel isn't human and, and Paul didn't get it from a person... Well, where did it come from? How did Paul get it in the first place? We'll look back at the text. Verse 12. I didn't receive it, the gospel. I didn't, I didn't receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So God told Paul directly about Jesus, who he is, what he did to save us. So in other words, if this gospel is not man's gospel, verse 11, it's not man's gospel because it's God's gospel. He made it, he created it, he invented it, he planned it, he accomplished it. All the events that are spoken of in the gospel message, God did all of that. That's why I'm shocked when people say stuff like, yeah, Christianity's great, Jesus is great, but Paul, man, I don't have any use for him. Uh, God used Paul's mouth to speak his message. 13 books of the New Testament written by Paul, which this is God's message to us through Paul. You can't, you can't take Paul or leave Paul. You can't, you can't leave Paul and think you still got God. That's the point of Galatians 1. You leave Paul, you leave God because Paul's message, Paul's writings are God's message, God's writings. So the source of Paul's message The same message the Galatians were leaving, the same message the false teachers were distorting, the source of that message was God himself. He made Paul's message known to him. So to leave the message was to leave God, which is why Paul was freaking out. Which is why Paul's like, I'm astonished. What are you doing? You can't leave me if you leave me. You've left God because my words are God's words. My gospel is God's gospel. The message he taught the Galatians was God's. So to leave it is to perish. So unlike the false teaching in Galatia, unlike the false teaching of our day, point number two, the gospel is not discoverable. The gospel is not discoverable. The gospel isn't one message in a long line of of. Uh, American Idol contestants who are all just dreaming to be discovered. The gospel isn't just one message in the salad bar, you know, and, you're, and it's just sitting there, like, oh, please pick me. Like, the gospel isn't something that we discover, that through study and talking to other people, that, that that's how the gospel came about. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the only reason this exists is because God spoke it to me. That's how we, we learn Christianity through us, other people teaching us, but not Paul. He got it directly from God. No one else gets that, by the way. No one else gets that because Paul was the last apostle. So, so Paul receives direct revelation, and it happens. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, Paul, Paul is on his way to go imprison Christians, write their death warrants, 
He's on his way to get them, and the risen Jesus appears to him, stops him, and says, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. I am the God that you think you're serving. He repents and believes. So Paul's point here is Christianity is not the product of someone's imagination. It's not a bunch of people sitting around under a tree going, let's just think of a religion. Paul is saying, no, this is supernatural. This is supernatural because it was, this, was, this was not passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. This is supernatural. The gospel, the good news, God's message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone was information no human being could have ever come to unless God gave that knowledge to them first. Notice verse 12. The knowledge that he received was about Jesus. The revelation about Jesus Christ. That's what that means. And so the the, the revelation is who is this Jesus person? What did he actually do? How do we get in on the benefits that Jesus gives? So look at, you're in in Galatians. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 16. Paul reiterates this in 1.16 when he says that God, verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Do you see that? This wasn't Paul sitting around going, God, tell me who you are. I want to know who you are. Paul's doing the exact opposite of that, actually. This was God saying, time to tell Paul who I am. Please to reveal his son to me. And I want you to see this in another place, too. So keep your, keep your finger here in Galatians 1 and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. It's about eight books to the left. If you got a Bible from one of the ushers, it's page 911, Matthew 16. So this is really the high point of the Gospels, like right in the middle. The the Gospels are are seeking to answer the question, who is this Jesus person? Who is he? And it's it's when we get to Matthew 16 that, that one of the disciples finally gets it. They finally understand like who Jesus is. They ID him accurately. And so in Matthew 16, Jesus is pushing towards this, towards this question. And so in, verse, in chapter 16, we'll start in verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, well, what's public opinion about me? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist and Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Public opinion is split on you, Jesus. We don't know who, they, they don't know who you are. Well, then he looks at them, verse 15, and says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. In verse 16, Jesus answered him, great job, buddy. You figured it out. How long have we been hanging out together? How long have we been, you've been listening to me preach? Finally, you got it right. Is that what, what the text says? No. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this from any person. You didn't receive it from someone. You weren't taught it by someone. What does it say? But my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So he's saying to Peter, Peter, the reason that you ID'd me accurately is not because you were studying this. It's not because you you watched me and were reflecting on everything going on. And we're like, he's got to be the guy. He's got to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, the reason you know this is grace. God decided in his grace to open your eyes and help you see what you never ever would have seen that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. So this gospel, this message about Jesus isn't discoverable. It's not able to be discovered. It is revealed. 
It is given. Now, now turn, to, turn back to Galatians. Because if, if this message is revealed by God, if this message is something that is... Uh, well, let me back up and say this. I, I was talking to somebody in between services about this point. So let me say this. There are all kinds of people that say, I got a message from God. How do you know that what they're saying really is a message from God? Well, that's going to be point three. But now back to point two. Notice if, if, if this message is revealed from God, and if, if God cannot lie, which is what the scriptures teach, then this message is truth. This message is truth. And I want you to see, this is, this is the way that Paul thought about this message. Look at Galatians chapter 2, and drop down to verse 5. To them we didn't yield in submission, even for a moment, so that, notice this, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Notice the connection between gospel and truth put together. Take a look at verse 14, chapter 2, verse, verse 14. But when I, Galatians 2, 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step, notice this, with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. Elsewhere, the, the Bible, the, the, the gospel, this message of salvation is called the word of truth. The word of truth. So in Galatians chapter 1, Paul is contrasting man-obsessed lies. Lies that say you've got to earn your salvation and keep your, keep, your, keep your own salvation. You've got to do all of that and so God will save you. He's contrasting that with God-centered, gracious truth. Absolute universal truth, true for every person in every place that's ever lived kind of truth. I remember talking to a physics uh, student from UCLA once, and he was really coming after me, making fun of me. Oh, you stupid Christian, you know, patting me on the head. And, you know, you, you just don't understand. Science has proven that there's no such thing as absolute truth. He's talking about um, experiments that I was aware of, but I wasn't, you know, saying anything to him, just letting him, I call it waxing elephants. You know, it's, you know, they're waxing eloquent, but you know, I just kind of waxing elephants. And so he's waxing elephants about how great his, his whole worldview is. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And he's going on and on and on and on. And so I finally just said to him, Hey, so, so let me get this straight. Are you saying to me that there's no such thing as absolute truth? And I kid you not, this guy, he says to me, absolutely. Just like that. Absolutely. And his buddy next to him goes like this. To say that, to say truth that's true for everyone doesn't exist is to say it's true that there is no truth. Just let that roam around for a second. It's true that there is no truth. That's a contradiction. That's a sure sign that something you're saying is false. And the other sure sign that that what you're saying is false is this. Jesus said... John 17, 17, your word is truth. So Jesus believed in truth. Logic says there has to be truth. Guess what? I don't want to be on the opposite side of Jesus or logic. And then at this point, people go, oh, well, you know, truth exists, but you just can't know it. Really? How do you know that? Whoops. So there's logic again. It's the straitjacket for people who reason insanely is logic. 
And then on the other hand, there's John 8, 32, where Jesus says, you will know the truth. And the truth will what? It'll set you free. So people live in bondage when they think truth doesn't exist or it exists and you can't know it. Jesus says no truth does exist. You can know it. And it is found in the gospel. The gospel is not hidden. It's not obscure. It's been revealed here. It's been revealed in this book to Paul and the other apostles. And they they didn't write so that we wouldn't understand it. God wrote these truths through them in this book so that we would understand it. It's clear. It's knowable. So for those who like to say, oh, you know, well, that's just in your interpretation. Or you can't really know what the Bible says. um, Yes, you can. God revealed it, Galatians 1.12. He revealed the gospel to men like Paul who wrote it down to be understood. We become too much like our culture. We hide behind relativistic cardboard boxes of relativism. Where it's like, oh, you know, thinking that that can keep us protected from, from facing God's truth. When truth is, is black and white, truth that's not comfortable, truth that makes us mad, truth that demands we change, truth that tells us that we're wrong and as an expression of love for us to open our eyes to see, you know what, I need to get my mind off of me and, 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 and like it says, off of man's gospel, I need to put it on God's. But again, this difficulty, this, the way that truth confronts us, God's truth, it shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Because this message is not human. This message doesn't come from us. This message is supernatural, meaning God didn't give it, to, give it to us to puff us up. He gave it to us to set us straight, to make us right with him. Well, the question now, like I said before, is what proof is there, Paul? So you've made these, these radical statements. You've, you've made massive statements that God is speaking to you, that, that your message is unlike any other message on the planet. Well, Paul, that's great. What's your proof? And it's at this point that I would expect some rational arguments. I'd expect some apologetics. Maybe Paul would say, well, it's not man's, it's not man's gospel because we'll, we'll take a Greek religion, take Roman religion, and let's contrast that with the Bible and see like it's man-made versus God revealed. Like he doesn't do any of that stuff. That's what I would do. But to show the supernatural nature of his gospel, Paul tells his story. Take a look at verse 13. Galatians 1.13. He says, I received this through a revelation of God. Now watch this. Well, here's my argument. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. So here's Paul going, um, here's my point. Here's, here's the proof that this is supernatural. He goes, you can't explain me. You cannot explain how I left Judaism. You can't explain why I left Judaism. He was fulfilled. Nothing stood in his way. He's the top of the class. He was the, the rabbi rookie of the year. He wasn't half in, half out, wishy-washy like many of us. Like He was all in Judaism's practice and beliefs and rituals and writings and Sabbaths and holy days. Notice verse 13. This was his life. This was his way of life. He was all in, baby. Like This is it for me. Burned all my bridges. This is it. He was, verse 14, extremely zealous. He was a fanatic to the point of imprisoning and killing people who embraced Jesus. He was a religious terrorist. 
He knew Judaism, Christianity are diametrically opposed. So for him, this meant war. He was all in to stop Christianity. Look at verse 13. His goal for Christianity was what? Wasn't to disturb, wasn't to harass. His goal was to what? Christianity. What does it say? Destroy it. That word means to extinguish, to decimate. He wanted to make the church extinct. So unlike the false teaching in Galatia, unlike the false teaching of our day, point number three, the gospel is not powerless. The gospel is not powerless. Here was Paul, couldn't be any more opposed to Christianity. Spreading it, planting churches, and telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. And his point is this, how do you explain that? How can you rationally explain that? It's like, that is power. He didn't just think, again, he didn't just think Judaism is true. He thought God was pleased with him hunting Christians down, pursuing them like a lion pursues his prey in order to kill them. He didn't just hate Jesus and Christianity. He's not like, he's not like on his blog going, oh, I hate Christians. Christianity's stupid. Like, he's killing Christians. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He didn't secretly doubt Judaism or, you know, I've got all these doubts. You know, you read about people converting to Christianity. Like, he thought he was serving God. He thought this was the only way. There is no, no more unlikely convert than Paul. So the point in his message is the gospel has to be supernatural to transform someone like him. And that's exactly what the gospel is, right? It's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Why? Because we are dead in our sins. Why? Because we cannot save ourselves. Why? Because in order for us to do any good thing, Jesus says, he's got to do it. His word, Jeremiah 23.29, is like a hammer that breaks hearts hard hearts. It breaks them into pieces. His word, Hebrews 4.12, is like a sword. It dissects our hearts and, and just lays us bare before the God that we will answer to. One author put it this way, John Stott. He says, uh, a man like Paul was before he was saved in that mental and emotional state was in no mood to change his mind or even to have it changed for him by men. No conditioned reflex or other psychological device could convert a man in that state, the state that we read about in verses 13 and 14. Only God could reach him, and God did. As you you read the book of Acts and you read this story, he talks about it in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 27. What was it that converted him? What was it that changed his mind? Here he is with papers from the high priest to arrest in prison and even kill Christians that he finds in the city that he's going to. So he's on his way to do this. And what was it that converted him? Answer, he experienced the risen Jesus. He interacted with Jesus. He, he was met by the resurrected Jesus. See, this was, this, was, this was not something that you could, you could not point to anything in his life and go, all right, well, we planted those seeds when he was little, so, you know, he's not going to depart from that, so eventually he's going to be a, a, a good Christian, you know. There's nothing there. There's, there's, there's nothing there that screamed he's going to be a Christian someday. No, Paul became a passionate follower of Jesus because he met the risen Jesus. 
He didn't believe based on the testimony of someone else. That's how we believe, right? We, we hear from other people who hear from other people. We accept the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament that said he's alive. But there's enough proof for us to go, okay, I'm in. Those are secondary sources. We, we hear about the message from someone else. Paul is a primary source. Now, it's one thing to be a primary source if you're like one of the apostles and you walk with Jesus, you're interacting with him all the time for two and a half years. He dies, rises again, and go, okay, Jesus is alive. It's one thing to be one of the apostles and say that. It's another thing completely to be an an avowed enemy of Christianity. Absolute enemy of Christianity. For you to say Jesus is alive, Paul's argument that you cannot explain that. That is supernatural. For me to be a Christian, he's saying this whole thing has to be supernatural. So Paul becoming Christian is about as likely as me rooting for the D-backs as a Dodger fan. Probably not going to happen. No, but seriously though, Paul becoming a Christian is uh, like the Pope denying Catholicism. It's just never going to happen. Now, we don't just have Paul's conversion, which is powerful and shows that Christianity is, in fact, supernatural and true. We also have something else. We have our testimonies. Right? We we can't say that we're primary sources of this message, that we saw the risen Jesus. But we've, we've believed the gospel in a way that's far beyond the power of any person to convey the message. Nothing I do up here converts you. Nothing I do up here actually accomplishes any good thing at all. Unless God combines my words with his influence in your life. So when you hear my words as the word of God, it's simply I'm like one of these instruments up here. They, they play those instruments. They, they make that sound come out. In the same way, I'm just an instrument. And God chooses in his kindness to speak through me. And when you hear, like I hear, I hear, it's very humbling when I hear people say, gosh, it's like you were just talking to me. I say, one, praise God because he's using me. And two, no, God simply used my mouth. He simply played his music through me. He drops, I can, I can drop this message into your head, but only he can take it to your heart. And that's what you have. And Ephesians 2.11 commands us to remember our, pre- our pre-Christian days. Not to revel in our sin, but to remember what God rescued us from. And so as you think about this, like we may not have any former uh, killers of Christians in this room. But maybe we have some uh, former drunkards, former fornicators, former partiers, former lovers of money, former brawlers, former lovers of self rather than lovers of God, former drug dealers, former drug users, former adulterers, former self-righteous goody two-shoes, former thieves, whatever it might be. It's not that Christians aren't tempted by all of those things. We are. But then while, here's the point, while we were those things, God showed us his grace and saved us in spite of those things. And he didn't just save us. He's transforming us. Sure, the power of God is seen in Paul's transformation, but it's also seen in our transformation. I tell people who visit our church, you know, we're three years, two and a half years into a church turnaround. I tell people all the time, look, I know we are are not the church that we used to be, but we are not the church that we're going to be. And that's the same for all of us, right? We're not who we used to be. 
But God is transforming us and changing us into the image of Christ. And why is that happening? Why is that, why is that happening in our hearts? Why is he transforming us? Answer, because Jesus is alive. This left-handed, non-human, supernatural message isn't easy for us to live out because we're natural, human, right-handed spiritually. We are so unlike God, it's embarrassing, but that doesn't stop him from saving us. It doesn't stop him from changing us until the day we meet him face-to-face. This message, this gospel is powerful, and it transforms because it is supernatural. So in the end, if you take a look at verse 11, Galatians 1.11 is the declaration. My gospel is not man's gospel. Verses 12 all the way down to verse 24 is the proof that, God, that Paul gives that his message is supernatural. And if it's supernatural and from God, that means it's true. So I want to end by taking us back to that idea in point number two, that the gospel is true. The gospel, this message of Christianity, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, repentance towards God, faith in Jesus, that all of that is true. Which means it doesn't depend on our feelings, our desires. It doesn't depend on our um, likes or dislikes. Christianity has nothing to do with our opinions at all. It doesn't, it, it, it exists out there. It's not rules to live by. It's not life philosophy. It's not a self-help program. It's not a journey. Christianity is historic. It's history. Christianity depends on actual events, on events actually taking place in history. That if those events didn't take place, this whole thing is a waste of time. Like Jesus has to be a real person or this whole thing is a waste of time. Jesus actually had to die on a cross. He actually had to rise again or this whole thing is a waste of time. So Christianity is really a record of what God has done in history through Jesus to save people for himself who will exist for the glory of his name. So I want to end with this question. If, if Christianity is true, which is Paul's point in this passage, then Christian, can can you and I live like it's true? Look at what Paul did for a lie in verses 13 and 14. He was adamant about like violently persecuting people, giving himself completely to what he calls the traditions of my fathers. This massive amount of, of, uh, of Hebrew teaching and rabbi's teachings. He says, I gave myself zealously to all of that to the point of killing people who disagreed. I'm not saying let's go do that. But how different would your life be if you lived your life knowing Jesus is alive right now? How different would your life be if you said, self, you are right with God. You cannot add to that rightness. You cannot take away from that rightness. You can't earn your salvation. You can't keep your salvation. Jesus did it all. How much would your life change if we just simply lived like the truth is true? Something to think about. Let's pray. Jesus, um, what we see in Paul is a powerful testimony to the truth of this message that we preach here every Sunday. He is living proof. He is a living apologetic, a living defense for the reality of what you did when you died on the cross and rose again. 
And so while that's helpful intellectually, maybe, we need you to help us live like the truth is true. We can't do it without you. We can't do it without your grace. You've got to be the one that, that allows us to see the world that way. You, you've got to be the one that, that grabs a hold of our hearts and, and allows us to, um, to live like the truth is true. You've got to do that. So would you please do that in us, every single one of us? This isn't our thing, our hobby, our, you know, our preference. This is true. And so help us, give us eyes to see just how true it is. We ask this so that you would be honored, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. So the worship team is gonna come back up and sing one.